Hello, everyone, and welcome to Broadstone's broadcast with me, Simon Q, Head of Market Engagement, and our very special guest today, Chloe Taylor, who is the very first CEO of the Communications Legends Quiet Room. Welcome, Chloe. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be happy to be uh, communication legends in the pensions industry. Of course. Yeah, we all think that. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's really good to have have you uh, have you with us. So a mighty change for you. Um, I say mighty. Uh, you've been with Quiet Room for a little while now, but do you want to talk us through how you've got to where where you are now? The the first CEO. This this wonderful step. Yeah, it's so exciting. Um, so I've been at Quiet Room for about seven years. Um, there's been lots of change in those seven years, but but I think still kind of true to the business that Mark and Vince started 20 years ago this year. Um, so it's just the next chapter, really, I think. Um, Mark and Vince founded the company, um, had done loads of work in pensions and communication, have built up this business full of incredible people um, and are sort of handing the reins over a little bit, I suppose. Um, so I've been on the board for a couple of years and now, and now taking on this new role. Um, January 2024. So really, really exciting. Um, it hasn't. There's not some kind of huge change coming. We're still, we're still the quiet room we always have been and and are planning to be. But we've got lots of exciting plans um, coming up. Wonderful. Is it slightly scary? Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um, the bit that's scary is just wanting to do a really good job. Um, but I honestly, I know everybody says this about the company that they work in but the people at choir room are genuinely phenomenal and and honestly um could probably be a company that just sort of got by on people being brilliant but that would be quite stressful for them so in many ways my role is to make sure that these brilliant people can be brilliant without having to stress about about the sort of cogs that go around it um so it's definitely scary but it, i'm more excited than terrified um which i think is a good sign <laughs> Excellent. I know. I know our listeners can't see your face, but I can. I can confirm. There's definitely excitement there. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, what what's just sort of day one, first month, first six months? What does that look like for you? I think it's going to look like um, just pushing ahead with what we're already doing. We've been so so. We're all about for anyone who doesn't know who Quiet Room is, because um, they. they there are lots of those people um, and that's fine, but now they will. Um, <laughs> we're an insight-led communications consultancy and we specialise in um, pensions, investments and insurance and making them accessible to the people who need them. And I think what's been evolving in the last sort of year or so is building on much more of an insight-led way of approaching things. Um, there's always going to be a place for kind of best practice. It's been a great tool. It's a great tool for everyone to take you from what you're doing now to making it a little bit better. But I think what's exciting about the work we're doing and actually the appetite for the industry as well is that, I mean, it's also partly regulation, but I think it's it, it's genuinely coming from a good place within industry as well is saying how can we be even more confident that we're doing things in the right way that we're communicating with people in the way that's going to land the best that's going to help them that's going to make them feel confident and positive and that all comes from from better insight so a lot of the move that we're making and the work that we're um doing more and more of is starting from that place of 
of insight of understanding members and consumers um, and how we can do things to serve them better. And we've seen really encouraging conversations with our clients and other people in the industry who are really behind that. And uh, some of the regulator uh, and the FCA's actions have, have helped with some of those conversations, I think, as well. Yeah, they're uh, they're very good at helping in uh, in some ways, aren't they, the regulators? Um, your your point there, uh, Chloe, about making it land, it's it's so much more than just sort of clear language, isn't it? Uh, and how how do you how do you go about knowing or working out first of all how to make a message land, whatever that message might be, uh, and then monitoring how well it's landed. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things and I'm like, I'm, I'm glancing to my left because I'm in a Zoom booth in my office and I can see some of my colleagues out there and all I'm thinking is they would have a much better answer to this than me because they do it all the time. But broadly, um, I mean, there's 101 things you could do. And so half of the job is saying, um, what is a proportionate amount of insight? Because one of the traps that you can fall into is thinking that insight means that you have to do an enormous standalone research project. Now, sometimes that is the right thing to do, but very often it, you don't need it. Um, partly because the best communication has a very specific objective. And when you have a very specific objective, you kind of know where the gaps are that you need to fill in, that you need to understand. If you're trying to get someone to increase their contributions to a DC scheme, you know very well that the gaps you need to fill in are, well, why are they not doing it? How can we find that out? Um, and that might, you know, for example, just finding that out might expose to you whether it's a problem with the journey. Is it just that it's too complicated and everyone's forgotten the password to the portal? Or is it that people don't have enough money? And actually, you need to look at something much bigger, like the sidecar savings sort of ideas that are coming up. Now, both of those are completely different initiatives, but they might be the the thing that's stopping somebody doing something that feels very simple, which is contributing a bit more. So understanding what you're trying to do, knowing therefore what you need to find out, and then the the thing that is in some ways the hardest bit, which is trying to figure out what to do in order to change that outcome. And to your point about measurement, um, the more testing you can do of your answer to the challenge before you push it live to potentially tens of thousands of people, the better, um, because your members and users and customers will always surprise you. That is, that is the thing that we have found time and time again. Um, and it's very humbling because when you put things in front of real people, they tell you they tell you exactly what they think. Um, but it does make your output so much better, even if um, you might have a, a slightly frustrated ego at going, gosh, I've been doing this one way for, for three, four, five years. And actually, people now say they want something different. Yeah, well, that's, there's no sort of one standard member, is there, when you're trying to 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 communicate with them? They'll all, all want to operate in uh, in different ways on different platforms, have different understanding of what you're trying to get get across. I guess it's really important then for you to spend time at the start of the process to fully understand exactly what it is you're trying to do before you then sort of embark on it rather than trying to fill your way through it. Um, as you say, going live to potentially tens of thousands of members. Yeah, exactly. And and it's interesting 
to see how different businesses and different trustee boards operate in terms of being really clear on some of those objectives. And and it's okay not to know exactly what they are. Sometimes part of the process is figuring those out collectively. And that's quite a fun, fun thing to do. And it's helpful. And it feels like it's really adding some value. Because typically, it's not just about what you're going to put in a communication, but it has sort of wider implications. Um, and in many ways, that that's where some of this stuff gets really exciting and, and genuinely feels so meaningful to go, I know we were just trying to figure out how we were going to write to someone about something. But in that process, we've discovered something that might change the way we think about I don't know, the way in which we invest or the way in which we present defaults or the way in which we onboard someone into this pension in the first place. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really fun place to be. And and I love being in those conversations, which are about the whys and wherefores before we get stuck in. And then I hand over to an ex- excellent one of my colleagues who's much better than me at producing the content itself. They wouldn't trust me with a with a draft. <laughs> they can help it. No, it's it's good to have good colleagues and, and working with actuaries. I, I've fully appreciate that as well, because they wouldn't let me anywhere near an actuarial calculation and, and <laughs> rightly so. But tell me, where do you think the industry is? Because, I mean, you would have seen a lot of change in in seven years. And we come from a place where it's very much telling the member what they're going to get. Um, we know best, so we're just going to tell you rather than where we are now. There's much more understanding around communicating, engaging. I mean, it's a, 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 a one of those words that, that doesn't really mean anything. We've got so many of them in the industry, but engaging with a member, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to that a bit later. Um, do, you, do you think we're, we've moved forward now? We're, we're much more focused on members, or do you think there's still quite a way to go? I think that people are much more conscious to think about member views and and member action and part of that i think is is just the transition across into the dc world and the fact that you know almost regardless of how engaged you are as a member of a dc pension scheme at some point you're going to have to make a decision and that decision is going to have a huge impact on your financial future um and so even if a scheme thinks they have the best defaults in the world they're still going to need to engage their members in some kind of decision-making process in a way that for the legacy DB systems just was never a challenge. Now, lots of people will say there's still good reasons to have members engaged in what is probably one of their biggest assets, if not their biggest financial asset, um, even if they're not having to make big active decisions in order to make use of it. Um, But I think that has changed. I, I think the exactly as you say, engagement's a very broad word and can mean a hundred different things to a hundred different people um which isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you can do the next piece which is but what are we trying to do with this what are we trying to do next what are our, our objectives here um it's been really interesting we've done lots of work on buyout communications we've built a toolkit i mean that has definitely been a place where we've seen members surprise us um testing things with them um turns out they all want a bullet point list at the end of a letter um, when best practice used to say don't say anything twice but actually they, that's exactly what lots of people want when something's complex is to have a recap at the end um, and that's been really interesting because in so many ways buyout communication is about not getting complaints and making people feel good about something you're not trying to ask someone to take lots of action um, so measuring those kinds of things can be challenging 
some people have a much bigger onus on the fact of how they want members to feel. Others are much more focused on no complaints to the to the contact centre. Um, and those have to all be valid objectives. Um, but sometimes teasing them out is really helpful to get to a place where you're then able to make good decisions about what exactly you're saying to people and whether people need different messages as well. Um, because my favourite thing about any new new project with a pension scheme is that it always starts off with um, trustees telling you that their scheme is particularly complex. And it's always true of everybody. <laughs> yeah, ev everyone's different. <laughs> yeah, everyone's complex, but in a different nuanced way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so many times we've heard that. You said something when, when we were planning uh, the podcast, Chloe, you said that bio uh, communications only happen once. You only really get one one crack at getting it right, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And I think um, that's what makes it something that we found really interesting because we've done loads of the work up front that you might normally do as part of a process. Lots of communications can be iterative when you're trying to say, how do we make our benefit statement do what we want it to do, whether that's increased contributions or whether that's help people make decisions at retirement. You've got you've got every year to have a go at that and, and incrementally make it better and measure how it worked and change it. And, and the move to digital communication as well has opened that up even more because you can monitor a web page. I mean, day to day, if you want to, week to week, month to month, and make it better and better because you're getting live feedback. When you've got, particularly with the DB schemes, a big one-off communication, and Bio is, is our best example with the industry as it is at the minute, um, as a trustee, you can't send it to 10% of your membership and tell them you're winding up and then refine it based on that and do it somewhere else. So it's been really interesting for us to think about how we can build something that does that testing and iterative process up front so that you have the best chance of something landing well when it lands once. And, and you can do that with lots of communications. Um, but with something that really is a one-off, doing that work up front has, has added loads of value. And we've seen some really positive positive results from that, um, which has been great and, and really fun and really interesting and um, a fun way to be still involved in, in lots of the DB schemes, even if they might be kind of coming to the end of that life cycle. And it must be very helpful that you've seen so many of these rather than a board of trustees I mean, probably lay trustees will only ever see one buyout transaction and that's it, game over. They, they, they sort of step away from the scheme and, and that's it. Uh, professional trustees will see more, obviously. Mm. But if you're getting involved in, in lots of different communications across lots of different schemes, you can bring that experience uh, to bear, can't you? Yeah, exactly. And and actually, it was a lot of the professional trustees who who helped us to shape the way in which we approach these buyout communications because as you say not only do they see more but there are certain pro professional trustees who are specializing in these kind of risk transfer activities anyway and so we had one of the reasons even that we came up with the toolkit as it is now was because we were talking to a group of professional trustees about how we approached buyout communication as a sort of principles-led way of approaching something discussing the sort of do's and don'ts and and what we thought was working particularly well and where there were traps to avoid and somebody said well this is brilliant but i have a load of small schemes and 
it's not feasible for them to to hire a specialist communications consultancy, particularly in a buyout situation where costs are particularly uh, at the top of everyone's mind. And so we developed something that we thought was going to take the best of our understanding that we could test in a really robust way. But there's so much that's common to buyout that we could distill it down into something that was repeatable and as a result makes it more accessible to schemes kind of no matter what their size. Um, and that's been really fun for us and has been a slightly new place for Quiet Room to go in terms of um, thinking about products as well as projects and consultancy. It's still at the smaller end of what we do, but we think there's probably lots of opportunities to help. I mean, we've done it before as a sort of industry initiative, the simpler annual statement and things like that. But thinking about what else there is in this industry that is common to so many people that we could put a bit of work in up front and make everybody's lives easier. But particularly for some of those smaller schemes where they're, you know, stretched as it is, um, but could just be doing everything a little bit better for hopefully not too much work on their side and we'll have done it up front. So it's really fun. I'm I'm excited about the possibility for that. And particularly as the industry is consolidating, um, I think a lot of the different parts of the ecosystem are thinking along these lines of, you know, how can we do one thing really well and do it lots of times? It's something we're very much alive to at Broadstone because we have a range of clients, um, but we do also have quite a few smaller clients. Mm. And despite the size of the the pension scheme, the pension scheme still has the same issues. It still has the same regulations, um, still has the same member issues, um, funding. They still exist, no matter how large or small it is. Do you do you find there's a a different way of communicating with the members of, of schemes dependent on size or is it broadly similar? It's. It's probably correlated with size, but the really big factors that you see that change more across the scale of a pension scheme is one, how homogenous the membership is. Um, And that can be a bit of a trap because sometimes people think, oh, well, this, for example, this is a finance business's pension scheme. They must all be very financially savvy. But when you look at the demographics of who's employed by a big finance company, there are an enormous number of people who don't work in the finance department. And so sometimes that can be a trap, but sometimes you do end up with small schemes where there's a certain amount of um, of sort of collective culture almost, whether that's the type of work they did or um, the demographic of the people or what's often a particularly interesting one from a communications angle is are they localized? Are there communities of people that even if they don't work at the company anymore or the business doesn't exist in the way that it did back in the day, that people talk to one another and you end up with these communities? Um, And then there's things like whether a business is unionized, that's much more likely to happen at a bigger end, um, but not because they're big, just because of the type of industry. So often it's those factors that become meaningful in terms of how you talk to people, but also how you listen to people, um, because they will be having communications with one another, they will be having conversations. Um, and and that's can be really useful, but can also be um, something to be mindful of. And, and I know there's various schemes that we've had conversations with over the years where one of their big challenges is 
sort of misinformation or unrest that's coming into conversations between members outside of the formal communication of the scheme. Um, so, so there's definitely not a hard and fast rule about the size, but there are definitely factors that it's worth thinking about. Now, obviously, um, those are a good steer, but you'd then always want to talk to people and, and test your assumptions. Because like I say, in that finance example, the easy assumption is that people are very financially savvy. But then if you went and did the work, and it doesn't have to be a lot of work, but a few conversations, I think it can be quite easy to find out that maybe some of your assumptions were wrong and that can help. Um, the other thing that's interesting though is all of the studies, and there's one particular study that uh, I can't remember the name of, but I can let you know, <laughs> is is around that idea of um, how simple to make something. And the study effectively shows that the, the simpler you can make something, the more intelligent and competent you sound as an individual. Um, lots of jargon, lots of complex language, um, lots of long, <laughs> unhelpful sentences um, are both not very clear to the people reading them, but also don't imply intelligence. Um, and so no matter how educated your audience, no matter how financially savvy your members, perhaps in a pensions context, um, they will not be put off by simplicity. Um, and so, so no matter sometimes what the demographic is or what you think your members do or don't understand, there are some pretty hard, hard, hard principles to operate on, which is that clarity, simplicity um, are better for everyone. So why wouldn't you? <laughs> And have you had any pushback from an industry that famously likes complex um, and uh, well, it kind of likes the, the, the dark arts, doesn't it? It, it? Traditionally, it's been this is our this is our thing uh, that we understand and nobody else can understand it. So they the, the industry tends to use jargon um, that, that means nothing really to anyone outside of the industry. Have you found industry people pushing back and going, well, no, no that's, we don't want it to be simple? I, I've never heard anyone say they don't want it to be simple. I think that would be, um, that would be giving away a bit too much of an agenda. Um, <laughs> but I've definitely, I think the pushback we get most often is around um, the line between technical accuracy and accessibility. Um, because this is really complicated. There's a reason that there's a huge industry of professionals <laughs> who are paid to manage this money and manage the administration and communicate it to its members. It's because it is complex. Um, but technical accuracy and accessibility are not necessarily at odds with one another. Um, I think the place we see it most is interestingly, people second guessing what their lawyers are going to say it's fascinating that process of risk appetite um, and I think often we shy away from engaging in seeing that sort of compliance, accuracy, legal risk as something that's an art rather than a science and often the best most productive conversations that we have around a piece of technical content is when the lawyers or compliance people are involved early doors and we are all clear on what we're trying to achieve, what we know about our members because we've done some of that insight work, where the risks are 
and how significant they are. And that we start from a place like that, which often means that by the time you get to your finished product, you've taken all of that into account, not just the accessibility, but the risk alongside it. And I've got something that works for everybody where it's tricky. And I've had chats with uh, pensions lawyers who have confirmed my suspicions that they also hate it um, is when you sort of ask them to mark your homework um, because all they can say is here are the risks and here are the non here are the things that are inaccurate and sometimes that leaves little room for creative solutions to those balancing those kinds of risks um so when it works best is when everyone's involved up front and i think that everyone sees that as a better process but it does it just involves a bit more work early doors and also having that clarity on your objectives because otherwise you, you don't know what the risks are um, until you've got that clarity but we've had some really really great projects where you know you say they say we can't say that and they would add an extra paragraph to mitigate the thing you have said and our content team say well what if i just took that line out or what if i tweet that word and suddenly the risk the risk is mitigated so creative solutions to some of those compliance problems is is the best way from our perspective but also and sorry i'm going on about this now you've got no, me on my, <laughs> my soapbox um is when you have the insight when you have member testing when you understand how something is going to land better than your best guess you're able to more accurately demonstrate the risks of something not being accessible and i remember having a brilliant conversation i think it was with the royal mail's dc plan years ago um, around that line between guidance and advice and there was one of their trustees said I want to get as close to that line as possible and I loved that because it was saying yes there's a risk of going over a line of advice that's not okay we don't want to do that that is not the business that we're in there's a reason there's a there's a line there but there's also a risk of going so far away from that line as to be unhelpful. And so unless you've got the insight, it's too easy to stray all the way away from that line. Whereas if you have insight, you draw a line on the other side and you, you sort of box yourself in and you say, we've got to sit between the limit of it being accessible, something people can understand, something people can act on, which is why we're sending it and otherwise why bother? And also the line that protects people and that is there for a reason to say this is not financial advice this is some help this is some guidance and once you've been able to set those tram lines as as equal because you've got professionals on both sides who are helping you set those metrics then what you end up with in the middle is your perfect balance of something that is clear accessible and doesn't introduce unnecessary risk that's absolutely fascinating because the the industry has tied itself in knots with various bits of regulation and this is we were saying earlier it's helpful it's helpful in generating work but it's not helpful in communicating something in a way that means something to the end user the member and the the point you've made there i was going to ask you about the the difference between information guidance and advice uh, advice and how you tread that line um yeah um i i think the industry has just been um overly cautious and if if we incur the wrath of the fca or the regulator it's it's bad on us and then reputational risk and whatever else rather than again focusing on what's best for the member and i, I really like what you're saying there about challenging the thinking mm. 
And so much of it comes from making more of a discipline of, of insight and communication um, because there's such clear discipline in so many other areas of, of this industry. You talked about actuaries. You, you know, if you're not an actuary, you probably can't do those calculations. You're probably not equipped. If you're not a pensions lawyer, you will not be able to enter into that level of conversation. And and there is, I think, starting to build within the communications end of the industry a more robust sense of, of discipline and expertise that allows you to have those balanced conversations rather than being sent a piece of technical uh, documentation and being told to wordsmith it and make it sort of a bit nicer without changing it fundamentally, which is sometimes worth doing, um, but is probably not going to move the dial. Uh, I'd agree. So I think we're probably coming to near to the end uh, of this broadcast, Chloe. I thought it'd be interesting, just following on from what you've said there, what's going to get the best out of communications experts when appointing them so the sort of instructions what's what's helpful to you and what's not helpful there there you were saying sort of just make it look nicer but don't change it um but what, what sort of things work and don't work i think the first thing and i you know i sound like a broken record now but it's being incredibly clear on what you're trying to achieve um and that is often a balance between what this if we're talking pensions what the scheme is trying to achieve and what and then on the flip side what are the needs of your members um now sometimes schemes think they know better what the needs of their members are than the members themselves might and that's a whole other conversation for another day um but if you know what your objectives are then you've started from a good place if you're then able to be really clear on where there might be red lines so that we can't change this or the systems are too fixed for us to do this now maybe we can do it later or actually there are some regulatory disclosures that we have to make so even though they might not be interesting or useful we can't shy away from them so clear objectives clear red lines and then it's the appetite and the scope to do a certain amount of insight and exploration within those parameters to achieve your objectives before you deliver the output. Um, and that might be really small. For, for some challenges, that insight and exploration is simply being explicit about um, what you want to happen and how the process looks. For others, it might be a more involved exercise where you need to talk to people so that you understand how they think about things, what their frames of reference are, what makes things difficult for them, what the real blockers are before you can create a solution that works. Um, but yeah, my my biggest piece of advice would be clear objectives, clear red lines if you have any, and then space to have the conversation in quite a consultative way i mean i would say that but <laughs> but so often um we jump to solutions and we think that communication has to be a letter um or even a web page when actually the answer to your challenge might be to change the process or change the form or just use a different name for something um so sometimes it makes the intervention smaller and makes the work smaller if you've done that piece of thinking up front an excellent piece of advice or was it guidance to end on <laughs> help i'm going to call it help <laughs> help yeah let's settle on help um, so 
thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much to Chloe Taylor, the first and no doubt best CEO, uh, certainly the best to, to this point, CEO <laughs> of Quiet Room, uh, the communications gurus. Thank you so much, Chloe. Thank you, Simon.